Welcome to the Creekside Community Church Podcast. If you don't yet follow Jesus, we want to provide you with a safe place to explore the Christian faith. If you are a Christian, we want to provide you with resources to help you grow in your faith and ultimately serve Jesus more effectively. For more information or to partner with us, visit our website at creekside.cc. Subscribe so that you don't miss any of our messages. We hope this content helps you take your next step with Jesus. So last Sunday, Janelle and I were in New Orleans, like I already shared with you, and uh, it was an interesting, fun time because we didn't have a rental car, we were just using public transportation to get around, and so uh, we got to explore a lot of New Orleans. It was really special, really cool city if you ever have a chance to visit or, or do visit. And uh, the last day, we were at the, the French Marketplace, which is like an open-air market, and people are selling crafts, people are selling all kinds of things, you know, jewelry they made or uh, handcrafted soaps or candles um, or, or T-shirts with expressions on them that would be unfit to talk about in church. Or um, one of the ones we spent some time at with was like a, a shop that had like purses and bags and backpacks and wallets, like these leather things. And, um, and, and before we had gone, my oldest brother actually had bought a hat. And he was like, here's the thing you got to understand is, you, you know, everything is up for a bargain, you know. You just got to bargain and talk them down. And we're like, okay, yeah, awesome. So we're looking at this stuff, and Janelle's really excited because she needs a new purse. Her old one's kind of breaking slowly. It's just like, like some of these bags. And so she's looking at them, and the lady's showing her all these different bags. You're like, ooh, how about this one? And Janelle's like, yeah, I like that one a lot. And in my mind, I'm like, don't say that out loud, Janelle. <laughs> That's not the way to get a deal. You got to pretend that you don't really care, you know. All of these Dave Ramsey lessons are going through my head. Um, and then, uh, and then they, they find one that Janelle really likes, and I can tell. And they're like, okay, well, it's $65. And Janelle's like, great. I'm like, no, it's over. As soon as those words are out of Janelle's mouth, I know we're not going to talk them down because we basically said, we want this purse. Um, so, uh, long, story, long story short, uh, we, Janelle got the purse, which is awesome. Actually, it's right here. You want to show it off, Janelle? Look at Janelle's new purse. It's beautiful. So cute. So cute. And um, yeah, it's a backpack purse. So fun. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so we got a good deal. I mean, $65 for a purse backpack thing. I think that's a pretty good deal. Uh, it wasn't a great deal because we didn't really bargain with them, but it was an okay deal. And at the end of the day, we're like, you know what? $65 is okay price. We probably could have talked them down, but it's fine because we would pay that much money for this item. Like, it's a good trade-off, right? Um, sometimes you get a bad deal and you're okay with it. Does that ever happen for you? Like, uh, it wasn't a great price, but I really wanted this thing, or it's really good quality, therefore it's worth it. Sometimes that happens. We get a bad deal or an okay deal, but we're okay with it because we like the thing enough. If we're going to look at a story in the Old Testament where the opposite happened. Where the Old Testament Israelites got a bad deal and they should not have been okay with it. And in fact, very much unlike me and Janelle's situation where we knew that it was an okay deal and we liked the thing, uh, in this case, actually, God tells the Old Testament Israelites through his prophet Samuel, God tells them, this is a bad deal. Don't do it. And he gives them a second chance. Like, are you sure you want to do this deal? 
It's a really bad deal. And the people say, yes, let's go for it. And the deal I'm talking about is found in 1 Samuel 8, and it's the story of the Old Testament Israelites requesting a king. And this is in the Old Testament, and this is uh, the story of the first king. And and in this series, uh, we're calling it the way of kings, and what we're going to be looking at is the way of the Old Testament kings and how they really failed in so many ways to live up to God's hopes and the people's hopes for what a king could do and would do, and how Jesus came 2,000 years ago as Messiah, which means anointed one or king, because they would pour oil on the heads of their kings to show that they were the king. And Jesus came, and he took all that failure upon himself, and he basically did a huge do-over. He did kingship right. And he came as the true and real king and reversed the story and turned it around and did everything right. And so we're going to look at how uh, the Old Testament kings really failed to live up to God's plan, but Jesus affected it perfectly. And so today we're going all the way back to the story of the start of kings. We're not even going to look at Saul yet, the first king of Israel. We're going to look at the request that the people gave to ask for a king that eventually resulted in the first king of Israel, which was uh, King Saul. So if you have your Bible, open up to 1 Samuel chapter 8. And let's look at the request for a king, this bad deal. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. Now, let's talk about these judges for a while, because actually this helps us fill in what's happening in the story of Israel at this point and why they want a king, okay? Um, Judges were very interesting. Unlike kings, judges were temporary in the Old Testament story. And when we hear judge, we think of someone like with a wig on and and a gavel Uh, making judgments. Now, the Old Testament judges did some of that, but mostly they were actually military leaders. But unlike kings, they were temporary. And the way it worked when the people first came into the promised land under Joshua um, is that when the people were being attacked or threatened by an outside influence, God would raise up a judge. And instead of this being a permanent person and like they would pass this on to their kids and their kids' kids like a king would. Instead of that, it was just a random person that God would raise up through his Holy Spirit and say, I want you to lead the people for this time. And then when you finish leading the people and defending them and leading the armies, then you're done. And you're no longer the judge. It was temporary and Holy Spirit empowered because the idea was that God was their true king. And he was just kind of using people to help them out. So it's this time of judges, and Samuel is actually one of the last judges. And so Samuel's getting older, and his sons, he made his sons judges over Israel, which is not a good call because that's not how the judges are supposed to work. So the name of Samuel's firstborn son was Joel, and the name of the second, Abijah. Uh, They were judges in Beersheba, yet his sons did not walk in Samuel's ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, look, you're old and your sons don't walk in your ways. So appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. We want a king. This isn't working. Now, at first glance, he's like, yeah, sure. Why not have a king? The issue is that, again, God was supposed to be their king. He was supposed to be their ruler and the head of the nation It was supposed to be actually a theocracy, a nation ruled by God. 
And so when the people say, we want a king, what they're saying to God, who rescued them out of slavery in Egypt, brought them into the promised land, helped them conquer the peoples, they're saying, we don't want you ruling over us anymore, God. And it goes on to say this. Uh, this thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. In other words, give them a king, for they have not rejected you, Samuel, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from, to, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Again, what is God saying? This is not going to be a good deal. Samuel, I want you to warn them that this is not going to be a good deal. But don't take this personally, Samuel. They're not really rejecting you. They are rejecting me. I am supposed to be the king, and they are rejecting me. Now, what I want us to look at today is the fact that even if you are here and you are a Christian, what's tragic to me about this story is not that this happened then. It's that practically in the way we live our lives, we still do the same thing today. In our hearts, we reject Jesus' kingship, his priority, his how he deserves first place, and sometimes we let other things take that place in our hearts and life. We reject him as king in a practical way. And so as we look at this story, I want you to consider how um, they, they rejected God's kingship and asked for a literal other king. But I think we do the same with thing with just with other things besides kings. We put money or fame or fulfillment or approval, or addiction. Different things get first place in our hearts, but something else besides God oftentimes slips in. And we allow that to happen. And the question we want to explore is how can we keep that from happening? How can we learn from these Old Testament Israelites so that the same thing doesn't happen to us? Because ultimately rejecting God's kingship is idolatry. Say no to God as king necessarily means you're saying yes to something else as the king of your life. Something else is getting first place. Again, the question I want you to consider today is what might that be for you? So we're going to read Samuel's warning now, and you're going to hear something cool. Uh, in ancient Hebrew, you couldn't underline things or put them in bold or italics. And so when you wanted to emphasize an idea, you would repeat it over and over again. You would repeat a key word. And that happens in this passage. And so as I read it from 1 Samuel 8, I want you to see if you can hear what the key word is, right? So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. 
he will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. Do you guys hear it? Shout it out. What is the word? Take. take, right? What do kings do? Kings take. Kings take and take and take. And it's so tragic because Samuel even says, the kings are going to take all your stuff. And ultimately, when you have nothing left to give, they're going to take you and make you into their servants and slaves. Does this sound like a good deal <laughs> to you? Kings take more than they give. That's how it worked in Old Testament Israel. But that's still the way it works with, again, this idea of idolatry. Anything you allow to have first place in your heart and life, whatever that thing is, will ultimately take more than it gives. As you're considering this question of what might that be for you, maybe it's even several things, a good question to think about is what do you sacrifice to? Sacrifice means to surrender or give things up towards something else. So what do you spend money on or time on? What do you give your attention to besides God? The answer to that question might be the thing that has the potential to drive Jesus out of first place in your heart. And whatever that thing is for you, the lesson is this. Just like the kings took more than they gave Anything besides God that gets first place in your heart will do the same thing. It will take more than it gives. It will demand everything and give you nothing. And at the end of this journey, as you give more and more things up, you yourself will become enslaved to this thing. It's a bad deal. And yet, there's something in me and something in you that at certain points... I still let that thing get first place. Why is that? And why would these Old Testament Israelites make this deal? (laughs) Samuel warns them, this is what's going to happen. Look at their response. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice, make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. And this sets up what happens in the next chapter where um, Saul becomes the first king of Israel. So the people are fully warned. They know this is going to be a bad deal, and yet they take it anyway. And I've been considering why. Why would they do this? And why do I do this? And I think the key comes down to those couple of verses. So 1 Samuel 8, 19 through 20. Say, we must have a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations. Our king will judge us, go up before us, and he'll fight our battles. 
As I've been reading this text and thinking about it, I think there were three drivers of the people's motivation that led them to make this really bad trade. And what's fascinating to me is I think these same three drivers are what is at work in our hearts, in my heart, in our lives today. So what are those three drivers? Number one is identity. Look at what people said. They said, um, we want a king to go before us. What's going on? Remember, in the time of judges, God was their king. Only problem is, God's invisible. <laughs> and they're like, we, we can't point to someone or something. Right? Who's our leader? Who are we rallying behind? Who do I identify with? We're followers of God. Great. Where is he? Where's his image? Where's his statue? Well, he told us not to make statues or images. Who do you identify with? God. You can't see him, but he's really there. It's difficult for them. They want someone they can rally behind and they can identify with. This person is our leader. He's who we follow. I want someone to represent them. Secondly, they're looking for security. They say, our king will go before us and fight our battles. Now, historically, this is significant because during the end of the time of Judges, you have to remember, Israel is a relatively small nation in comparison to all the other nations. So what's going on is they have the Philistines to the west on the coastlands, and they have the Ammonites to the east. And both of these peoples are actually more powerful than the Israelites. Israelites are sandwiched between them, and they're scared of them. Now, the ironic thing is, up until this point, God had totally protected them and taken care of them through his judges. But they're like, we just, we want more security than, if it's needed, I'll bring someone. They were scared. Their military threats. They wanted a person that they could trust to take care of those military threats instead of trusting and God. So there's an issue of identity, there's an issue of security, and there's an issue of perception, how the other nations view them. For some reason, what I'm clicking on is not what's up there. Has that been happening a lot? I heard someone say no and someone say yes. <laughs> um, give me one moment, sorry. Let me see if I can fix this. But the last one is perception. Well, I've reset this. Um, the people say, then we'll be like all the other nations. The idea, I think, here is, look, all the other nations do it this way, and we're kind of embarrassed. <laughs> we want to be like them. We don't want them to look at us and be like, judges, come on. We want to be like them. Issue is perception. How do people view us? We don't want to be looked down on by the other peoples. All right, so these were the drivers for the Old Testament Israelites. This is the reasons that the, the motivations why they said, okay, terrible trade, but it's worth it because we want someone to represent us for identity. We're scared of those other nations. We want a military leader that we can entrust ourselves in because we're not sure about God. We can't see him. 
And ultimately, we don't want to be embarrassed. We want to be like the other nations. We want their approval more than we want God's. Identity, perception, and security. So ultimately, what happens in this story is that God gives them a king, Saul. He's not a very good king. He doesn't even go out before them and fight their battles, which is why David has to step up later when it comes to David and Goliath. And ultimately, this whole king thing just does not work out through the whole Old Testament. Uh, It's failure after failure. And eventually, the people are conquered and taken into exile. What's the point? Military security? Eh, ain't happening. The people have been conquered. They're taken to other lands. But the prophets keep saying, there will be a king who will do things right. And ultimately, Jesus comes as the true king who instead of taking more than he gives, he gives more than he takes. And he gives us life and salvation and forgiveness and all these great gifts we celebrate throughout the the year. But something I keep going back to is this little ancient Israelite that lives in my heart. (laughs) What I mean is this tendency I have at times and places in life, even though I've said yes to Jesus being the king of my life, on a day-to-day basis at certain times and moments, I give myself to something else. Again, that's called idolatry. Why do I do that? Why do we do that? Because one, uh, the Christian life is a struggle to keep Jesus where he should be, to say, you are the king of my life. Nothing else comes first. And that's a struggle to actually do and carry out in daily life. The Christian life is a constant struggle to keep Jesus on the throne of our lives. You say yes to Jesus, that begins your Christian life. But then your ongoing Christian life is still one of daily surrender and even moment-to-moment surrender, saying, yes, no, I'm going to surrender to you again. And sometimes we get that wrong. See, the tragedy, again, is not that the people in the Old Testament times made this mistake. The tragedy is that sometimes each of us make the same mistake, and it's a bad deal every time. And so how do we not do this? How do we grow in keeping Jesus where he should be? My contention is, at least part of the answer, is the gift that God gives us in what's called the spiritual disciplines. The spiritual disciplines. Now, do you like discipline? (laughs) Most of us would say no, right? Discipline sounds like a spanking. I don't want that. That doesn't. Uh, so I want you to get that image out of your head. Instead, think about disciplines in the way you normally think of um, physical training, like working out, going for a jog, lifting some weights, okay? The way the New Testament talks about spiritual disciplines is actually very similar to that. There are things that God calls us to do to build up our spiritual strength and resilience. Now, it's a helpful picture but it's flawed in one way. When you work out and you go jogging and you lift weights, that's you making yourself stronger. Good job, you. When you engage in the spiritual disciplines, like reading scripture and praying and engaging in community and generosity and giving, 
When you do these spiritual disciplines, these are not self-help. They are God-help. These are things that we do as Christians that we believe connect us to God. And the power comes from him. And so it's like we're plugging into the power source. And then because we're plugged in, God can do stuff in us and shape our hearts and help us to grow in being more consistent in our walk with him. And here's how all this relates to Christmas and what we're celebrating in King Jesus, okay? Let me just put the pieces together for you. 2,000 years ago, Jesus came, and we believe that he is God incarnate, God enfleshed, God making his dwelling among us. And that means not only is God with us through Jesus, but that also means that Jesus is the perfect human, that in his life, he's not only showing us what God is like, he's actually, every single moment of every day that he lived, he was showing us what humanity is supposed to be like and could be like, what we are called to be like. He said, take my yoke upon you, for my burden is light and easy. When Jesus said that, he was referencing the practice of rabbis in his day, And those rabbis would have a set of teachings that they called their yoke. And when they said, take my yoke upon you, they did not mean simply memorize my teaching. They also meant live life the way I live it. Because my life models what I teach. It's perfectly matched up. So when we look at how Jesus lived his day-to-day life, we are seeing how God calls us to live our day-to-day lives And what does that include? Well, we know that Jesus would often go to lonely places to pray. He's the Son of God, and he's spending significant amounts of time just alone with him and the Father. Why? Because that's how we need to live as humans, connected to God. And he was rooted in Scripture. It looks like he had the whole Old Testament memorized. And he was engaging with his disciples in community. He was living out these disciplines. And I believe that we look at that as an example to follow. And so the more we engage in these disciplines, I think these are the thing that has the power to break these things that have the potential to take Jesus off the throne of our hearts. So let's talk about these in turn. Um, Identity, security, perception. Identity, security, and perception. We're going to apply these to our lives and look at why we go this way and how, for each of them, we're going to do the same thing. We're going to look at how the spiritual disciplines, when we practice them regularly, can break the power of that thing. So as we talk about this, I I want you to consider which of these has the greatest potential for you to push Jesus off the throne of your life. Is it identity? Who are you? Is it security? What are you scared of? Or is it perception? What do other people think of you? Which of those questions has that greatest tendency to push God away? So identity. I love this South African idea, uh, word Ubuntu. Ubuntu, have you guys heard of this word? It's this South African concept that a person is a person through other persons. Or, Or another quote I heard related to this is the best way to translate it is something like, I am because we are. Wait, what? But it's a relational understanding of identity. 
I think there's also actually a biblical understanding of identity. Now, most of us are steeped in like this Western individualistic worldview that says, thank you, Descartes, I think, therefore I am. I'm a thinking thing. (laughs) Problem is, biblically, that's not accurate. We are relational beings because God made us in his image and God is Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit, with each other, in relationship with each other from all eternity. So when this three-in-one God makes humans in his image, he creates us relational beings. And the point is this. When you ask the question, who are you? Who are you? Who are you, Melody? Janelle, who are you? It's very difficult to answer that question non-relationally. And it should be because a person is a person through other persons. In other words, who am I? I'm husband to Janelle. That's the description of relationship. I'm a father to my kids. It's relational. I'm the son of my parents, sibling of my siblings. <laughs> all right, these are all relational things, and, and they get at the core aspects of who I am and what makes me me, and the same thing for you. We are relational beings. In fact, psychology has proven now that um, if you want to know what someone's like and their characteristics and their attributes, the best way to figure that out is to take the average of their five closest friends. That can include spouse as well. But if you take someone's five closest friends and put them in a blender, that's the best and most accurate description of what you are probably like. Because we become like the people we spend time So here's the question. The question is, if on an identity level, who you identify with, the people you identify with, whether that's a political party or your place of work, if you have trouble letting that define who you are instead of letting God define who you are, what's the answer? One of the answers is spiritual disciplines. Why? Because the spiritual disciplines are how we spend time with God. And if you become like the people you spend time with, what happens if you spend more time with God? You're with him, and you come to identify with him more. He becomes one of those five closest friends that you become like over time. Spend time in prayer, in scripture, in community. Because as we do these things, you're spending time with God. And that has the power to break a little bit the temptation to identify with something else or someone else. Security. I'm going to tell you about a psychological experiment. I love this story. It's so fascinating to me. Um, So imagine this, okay? We're just going to imagine we're all members of this experiment. So put yourself in the the people who are being experimented on shoes. So here's what happens. Uh, You have volunteered for a psychological experiment. You don't know what it is. You signed up, though. And so you go to this research facility, they bring you down to the basement, you walk along this hall, they bring you into a room, they say, hey, for the purposes of this experiment, you have to do a word search. Okay, I'm not three, but okay. They give you a word search, and it has words on it like fast, fit, strong, 
They're like, okay, you do the word search, you finish it, and they're like, okay, thank you so much for your time and cooperation. Um, hey, before you go, uh, this didn't take very long, and there's another researcher working on a different project down the hall, totally unrelated. Would you be willing to help them out with their experiment before you go? And since you're a nice person, you say, sure, why not? So you walk down the hall, go into this other room, do this experiment that does not matter at all. It's like busy work, okay? You leave. What are they testing? Well, little known to you, there are other people being experimented on. And all the people get one of two word searches. You got the word search that has words like fat, fast, sorry, fast, fit, strong, quick. Other people get a word search that has words like slow, old, handicapped. Now, the secondary research thing down the hall, it's totally made up, has nothing to do with anything. What the researchers were measuring was how fast people walked down the hallway. That's what they were measuring. And here's what they found. People who had the word search that said fast, fit, strong, on average walked quite a bit faster (laughs) down the hall than people who had words like old, slow, handicapped. Those people tended to walk slower. This is not a conscious decision on this part. This is called priming. And the idea is this. The things that you experience in your environment are priming you. They're setting you up to respond in a certain way to life in the world. Now, this gets really scary if you think about how online algorithms work. You know, like you're scrolling on the internet, you see a thing about how you know, the stock market's going to crash. You're like, oh, that's scary. You click on it. The second you click on that, the algorithms come into play, and it's going to start showing you more news like that, right? This is just how it works. You click on, you know, World War III is about to break out. <laughs> or, you know, persecution's coming for Christians. Fortunately, unfortunately, more and more news stories are, are fear-based and meant to evoke anger or fear because those are strong emotions. And news has learned that we are more likely to respond and click on things that evoke strong emotions. But what happens if all of a sudden you're scrolling through Facebook and every single other media thing that it gives you is fear-based because you clicked on those things before? What is happening, whether you realize it or not, is you are priming yourself for fear simply through mindless scrolling, you're priming yourself for fear and to experience insecurity. So, how do the spiritual disciplines of prayer and scripture and community help us with this? Well, what happens if the first thing you do every morning is instead of opening Facebook or Instagram, you open this and spend time here? And talking to God through prayer. You're priming yourself to see the world more through his eyes. You're priming yourself for trust and security in God's identity. So identity, security, and perception. The approval of others and the opinion of others. I saved this one for last because I'm a procrastinator And this is the one I struggle with most, so I wanted to wait to talk about it. (laughs) 
perception, approval of others. Um, I just, this is the one that gets me. This has the most potential to get first place in my heart. Um, Part of this, I guess, is personality or history-based or something. Uh, If you're familiar with the Enneagram, I'm a three on the Enneagram. And if you don't know what that is, it's fine. Um, Just know I have this bad tendency to, to be analyzing people all the time. If I'm talking with you, in the back of my mind, there's analysis going on, and I'm just automatically analyzing what kind of person are you, and what are your views on politics, or religion, or Christianity, and without meaning to, I will shape how I respond and how I talk in that conversation to try and make it more likely that you will like me. That's just what I do, and I understand that, and I'm working on it, but that's in my heart. I really, really want the approval of others. People have called this approval addiction. Or for me, it could look like I'm going to work really, really hard on this message. And the motivation sometimes is not for God to get more glory, but for me. And I see that, and I don't like it. So what can I do to work on that and to change it? how do the disciplines respond to this and help me with this? Um, Thankfully, they do. Because, and and this is actually true with all these views we're talking about, all of these are rooted in lies, non-truth. And this one as well. And so the more you are in truth and talking to God about truth, and you're reminded of the story of Scripture, it combats the lies and gets at them. I put in your um, notes Philippians chapter 2. This passage is beautiful, and I think it actually responds to all of these points we've been talking about. It. Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 11. At its core, what this is showing is that Jesus is the better king, and he fulfills all these hopes, and he does it right. Now look at this passage at me and just marvel at it. And then let's, uh, let me talk about how this actually responds to all of these things of identity and security and perception. So Paul writes this in Philippians chapter 2. He says, Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited or held onto or grasped or used to his own advantage. Instead, He emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant. Do you see the contrast here? Kings take and take and take and ultimately will take you as their servants. But how did Jesus come? As a servant. Instead, Jesus emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Kings take, but Jesus gives. And through his life, he gives us an example to follow, and practicing these disciplines. Through the gift of salvation, he gives us a brand new identity as God's children, sons and daughters of God. He gives us security and ultimate hope 
That's what this passage talks about, right? For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave Jesus the name that is above every name. So the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Our future is secure because of Christ. And Jesus gives us abiding approval. If you struggle with this approval thing like I do, the, the question is, whose opinion really matters and really counts at the end of the day? And if everything else I've said today has not gone through or, or just not making sense to you, here's my biggest challenge. And this is for you, whether you are just exploring the Christian faith and don't consider yourself a Christian or whether you've been a Christian for years. A really helpful question is, what would be the natural end if I walked all the way down this path? Because that's what Samuel does to the people, right? You are walking down the path and asking for another king instead of God. Here is the natural end of that path. They're going to take everything and they're going to make you, your, make you into servants. That's the natural end. And I think it's really healthy whenever you feel something threatening first place in your heart to just consider what is the natural end of the path if I were to give into this thing over and over and over again. If I were to give into finding my identity in something else, what would be the natural end of that path? Or security and fear, insecurity and fear. Or for me, so here, here's what I actually go through and think about. When I feel that thing in my heart, it's like, you know, I want people to, you know, like, awesome message, Luke. And I want even more people to feel that way. Become famous, you know, like these megastar pastors or whatever. What would be the natural end of that path? You can spend your life working for that. And maybe even happens in this life. And then one day I'll die. And one day Jesus will turn. And at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And I will be ashamed of how much time and energy I spent trying to get glory for myself when he is the only one worthy of any glory. That's the truth. And that's the natural end of that path. And what reminds me of that and breaks that power is spending time here, reflecting on the truth of Scripture and the goodness of God. Spending time in prayer and saying, God, this is in me. Please take it away. Work in it. Work in me. Christian life is a constant struggle to keep Jesus on the throne of our lives where he should be. And the way we engage in that struggle is through these disciplines. Now, I know on one level that sounds like really cheesy and just like, read your Bible and pray, everyone. Go home. <laughs> but I want to at the underlying of why these things are so powerful, why I think Jesus modeled them for us. Because if you give anything else in your heart first place, it's going to ruin your life. It's going to take more than it gives. And you don't want to live that way. Let Jesus have first place, not just with your words, but with your actions, with your day-to-day -day choices, with what you spend time on and money on and what you give your attention Two, do not give anything else first place because if you do, it will just take, take, take and ultimately make you into its slave. It's a bad trait. 
So again, the question is, which of these three for you has the greatest potential to pull your heart away from God? We're gonna have a time of silence in a moment, and this is a time of prayer for you. It would be very strange to talk about the power of prayer and then not actually practice it. So I'm gonna give you some time to connect personally with God and just pray through this thing. Get identity, security, or perception. Spend time confessing that to God, asking him to help you connect with him, to let him be first in your life. So I'm gonna give you a moment to pray silently now. God, I pray you would help us to adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even to death on a cross. For this reason, you highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. So that in the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so God, I pray that we would confess you as Lord, not just with our words, but with our moment-to-moment actions and our day-to-day lives, that you would be the leader of our lives and that you would break the power of these things that can distract us from you and pull us away from you and our hearts away from you. God, give us the disciplines you practice these disciplines, these things that you give us as gifts to help us connect with you. God, help us to spend time with you so that more and more we become like you, see our identity as your child. God, help us to more and more seek your approval above anything else. God, help us to let go of fear and to grow in trust in you and faith in you in spite of what is going on in the world. We ask these things in your name. Amen.